turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the 11th chapter of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, I want to return to this passage of Scripture as we make our way <clears throat> to the end of our study of Daniel, which uh, we'll finish up in a couple of weeks or so. But chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel uh, are to be sort of taken together as a unity because these chapters include what is the final and longest prophetic vision uh, in the entire book of Daniel. Now, while you're turning there, um, I read a story <clears throat> recently. It was a story that circulated some years ago in the media about several cities that could be the next Pompeii. Now, Pompeii was the Roman city that was destroyed in 79 AD by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, just a, one of the worst disasters in history. But this article listed several cities that could experience something similar. Now, you'll be happy to know that High Point or Greensboro were not on the list. But if you live in Naples, Italy, well, Naples, Italy topped the list. Now, interestingly enough, Naples, Italy was in, is in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. So the volcano that threatens that city is the same volcano that destroyed Pompeii, which was to the south and to the east. Uh, Naples is to the west. Uh, if you like to travel to Hawaii, who doesn't want to go to Hawaii? Well, I guess it's Hilo. I guess that's how you pronounce this, but Hilo, Hawaii was second on the list because Hilo, Hawaii pretty much sits on top of the largest volcano in the world. So enjoy your island vacation the next time you head that way. Well, here's the thing. In spite of these potential threats, there are people who've lived in these cities, they've raised kids in these cities, people who vacation in these cities, and still move to these cities. But the question that I would ask is this question, what if you knew for certain that the volcano was going to erupt next week? If you were still planning on moving there, I guarantee you your plans would be changed in light of what you knew about the future. Or if you were living there, you'd get out of Dodge as quick as you could in light of what you knew about the future. The point is, knowledge of the future affects the decisions that we make today. And if only we knew what tomorrow would bring, then listen, we would look at things completely, uh, totally different differently than we do now. We would be sober in our thinking. Our priorities would probably be reshuffled in terms of what's most important because we would live in light of what we knew was coming. Well, the Bible doesn't give us all of the details and the dates about when specific issues will erupt, but the Bible does show us the future with enough insight that it should motivate and impact the way that we live our lives in the here and now. And scripture warns humanity of impending judgment so that we not be caught off guard. And perhaps one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible that contains future historical events is this chapter, Daniel chapter 11. Within this passage, Daniel the prophet is given a prophecy of future history. And the purpose is to prepare the people of God for what would happen in the days ahead, which would be days that involved conflict and struggle. 
Now, as we've been looking at this last prophetic vision that Daniel received, uh, we saw back in chapter 10, really how chapter 10 provides us with the context of the vision and serves as an introduction. Uh, There, Daniel is given a glimpse into the reality, the spiritual reality behind history and all of the happenings of history. He saw firsthand how unseen conflict in the spiritual dimension influences things that happen on the stage of history. And so all of the conflict then that we read in chapter 11, which really serves as the content of this vision, all of that action and all of that drama and all of that conflict and war and even chaos is being influenced by evil forces in that unseen realm. Well, chapter 12 provides the conclusion to the vision and promises that the kingdom belongs to our Savior and our God. And so the vision is going to end on a very high note, but in chapter 11, the emphasis of this prophecy is that God's people who were back in the land after the time of captivity would be experiencing one hardship, one crisis right after the other. And so, again, someone has went through this particular chapter and has seen how from verses 1 through 35 in Daniel chapter 11 all told there are some 135 prophecies that have been historically fulfilled and yet there's still an element in this chapter from verse 36 through the end of the chapter of something that is still future for the people of God the time of tribulation uh, the emergence of a final man of sin known as the Antichrist. There's some insight that is shed into that subject here in this 11th chapter of Daniel. So if you've got your Bible open, I want you to skip down with me to verse 21. The first 20 verses of the chapter, we looked at this last Sunday morning, but I basically showed you how that covers roughly 355 years worth of history. And keep in mind, all of this is prophetically shown to Daniel well in advance. Hundreds of years prior to Daniel's writing in the 6th century, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this uh, 11th chapter that doesn't happen until the 2nd century B.C. So more than 350 years, Daniel is told before things happen how they would happen. And the reason for that is because it would all impact the teeny tiny little nation of Israel there, uh, the Jews who were back in the land. Well, in verse 21 through verse 35, the time period that's covered is roughly a dozen years, 12 years, uh, as opposed to the 355 years covered in the first 20 verses. And there's one leader in particular that is sort of the subject of focus in verse 21 through 35, and it's a guy from history known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And the reason that he's given such prominence in this particular text is because of the way that he will impact Israel. And the ideology that he's going to introduce, in many ways, he's going to serve as a prophetic pattern of the Antichrist who's going to step onto the world scene in the last days. So look at verse 21. The Bible says, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He will come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies will be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. From the time that an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully 
and shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and set his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south will wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots will be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and will turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant." He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him will appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination of desolation. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now we'll stop reading there. But I want to speak from this subject this morning, the future man of sin. Now in the verses that we just read, there's a historical figure that we're able to look back in the past and see how this individual fulfilled what was shown Daniel all those years before, and that man is Antiochus Epiphanes. And yet Antiochus becomes this prophetic uh, prototype, if you will, of a future man of sin who's going to step onto the world stage in the last days. And the Apostle Paul writes about him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. In that passage, the Apostle Paul talks about how in the last days there will be a great falling away. There will be apostasy. Uh, In other words, people who had sort of superficially attached themselves to the faith will fall away in that time of testing and tribulation. And the man of lawlessness will be revealed who largely comes to the world stage and and his chief weapon of choice is deception. And many will fall victim to his lies. Well, we're able to look back into the past and sort of get a glimpse of what that character is going to be like. Now, in this passage we've read, I want to point out just a couple of things. Uh, First of all, notice with me there's a crisis to be faced. Daniel is warned by 
the angel here in this chapter of a coming crisis that God's people would face who were living there in the land. Now again, the 355 years of history that are summarized up through verse 20, it outlines what's now the history of the ancient East, all that was left uh, in the wake of Alexander the Great. And so chapter 11 talks about this struggle between a king in the south and a king in the north, and that's simply a reference to the rivalry that existed between the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid dynasties uh, from 305 to 175 B.C. Those two generals became the most prominent after Alexander had died, and so their successors fought over territory uh, in the centuries that lay ahead. Now, why is all of that recorded in this passage? It's because of the way that it impacted the people of Israel who were caught right in the middle of it all. And so the reason that the Ptolemaic dynasty is referred to to as the kingdom in the south and the Seleucid dynasty is referred to as the kingdom in the north, it's because geographically Israel is at the epicenter. Israel is at the center of the compass here in Daniel chapter 11. And so the conflict that boiled over between the kings in the north and the kings in the south, uh, it inevitably impacted the people of God who were just trying to serve God once they were back from the Babylonian captivity and had settled down in the land. Uh, They were raising kids and they were trying to serve God and be God's covenant people. And yet there's this conflict that engulfs the whole east and God's people are caught up in the middle of it all. And so one thing just led to another, and it just seemed like it was one crisis after another for the people of God. And that crisis sort of comes to a crescendo uh, once you get to verse 21 under Antiochus Epiphanes. Now we've talked about him before in our study of Daniel. Back in chapter 8, Daniel was given a vision, and uh, Antiochus is that little horn that's referenced there in Daniel chapter 8. Now maybe you've never heard of this guy, and that's fine if you haven't. Uh, Compared to other figures from history in terms of accomplishment, he's not even a drop in the bucket. Antiochus was merely that eighth Seleucid ruler who ruled in the north, but he was a megalomaniac, a crazy, vile man, and the reason he's given so much emphasis here in Daniel 11 is because of the way that he persecutes the people of God in Israel. And again, he's going to serve as a pattern for that future man of sin to come. So notice a few things about this crisis that Antiochus is going to cause. Uh, Notice first the details of his rise to power. Those details are recorded for us uh, beginning there in verse number 21. And uh, the idea is Antiochus, he's a contemptible person, which by the way, how would you like to be remembered in history as a contemptible person? So history doesn't really think too fondly of Antiochus Epiphanes. But he was a contemptible person to whom royal majesty had not been given. Uh, He comes to rule in that Seleucid kingdom, but he was not the rightful heir to the throne. He obtained his office through trickery and deceit. He obtained the kingdom by flatteries. The word there, it's it's this idea of deception, political um, intrigue, deception. History tells us that Antiochus was a masterful politician who knew how to win people over to his cause. 
One person has said this, that political skill that's married to an evil heart makes for a dangerous combination. Political skill, a charismatic personality married to an evil heart makes for a deadly combination. Now let me just tell you, when you read the headlines in our day and it's one political scandal in our country right after the other, so much so that we get used to this kind of thing and it doesn't take us by surprise anymore, you know we're living in a dangerous time, men and women. So Antiochus, he's this deceptive guy who, who gains power through intrigue and deception. Uh, part of his kingdom involved Jerusalem and uh, what was ancient Israel. Uh, one of the first things he did was depose the high priest in Jerusalem and put his own puppet high priest in who would be loyal to his own cause. In First and Second Maccabees, uh, the apocryphal books give the history of all of that. Verse 24 says that he scatters wealth in an attempt to buy the allegiance of people. He'll have grandiose plans of conquest in his mind. And Antiochus was determined to subjugate the entire East. And through deception, through strong arm tactics, he controlled Syria, he controlled parts of the Middle East, and again, the city of Jerusalem in particular. And prophetically, Daniel is being shown all of this some 350 years in advance. And it's a detailed prophecy of how this ruler comes to power, and it's something that Daniel had first been shown back in Daniel chapter 8. So that's the details then of his rise to power. But then notice the second thing about this crisis he creates. Uh, it's the disregard that Antiochus had for the truth of God. He had disdain for the Jewish scriptures. In fact, he hated the Jewish religion. Verse 28 says that his heart is set against the holy covenant. He will work his own will as he returns to his own land. The idea is Antiochus originally posed as a friend to Israel. And yet it was all deception. He becomes successful in his agenda to prevent worship in the temple, to try to do away with the Jewish scriptures so that he could import his own Greek philosophy and culture and religion. In fact, 1 Maccabees says this, uh, any books of the law that were found were torn up and burned, and anyone who is caught with a copy of the sacred books or obeyed the law was put to death by the order of the king. And so many historians even agree that Antiochus became the first person in history to, to, to persecute a people exclusively on the grounds of religious faith. He did everything in his power to try to eradicate Judaism through this enforced ideology known as Hellenization. Hellenization was, was basically the spread of Greek culture. And one of the ways that the Greeks did this uh, throughout their empire, uh, Antiochus would finance the construction of a gymnasium right there in the city of Jerusalem. And that was the whole part of the Greeks' culture, was the gymnasium. The gymnasium became the sort of the hub for culture. I don't have to get into all the details of the gymnasium in Greek life because it's kind of graphic. The name gymnasium itself means to exercise naked, so you just kinda get the picture there. But the bottom line is, that was Greek culture. 
that was being imported into Israel. Prior to this point, the Jews had stood against this kind of thing, Antiochus comes along and sort of forces it upon the Jewish people, and then you've got certain Jews who were more concerned about being liked by their Greek counterparts, so much so that they get swept up in the cultural movement. It was largely through the gymnasium in Greek culture that, that, that youths were trained and taught and, and indoctrinated as far as Greek culture and customs and lifestyles were concerned. So in Greek thought, the, the gymnasium was more important than the sanctuary. Can I pull over and park here for just a second and preach on? We've been raising fine little Greeks in our Christian homes for generations, haven't we? Well, we've allowed culture and the mechanisms of culture to train and disciple us and our children, and we merely give passing lip service to the sanctuary of God. Is it any wonder why when culture is moving uh, in, a, in, a, in a direction that is opposite of Judeo-Christian ethic, is it any wonder that so many who have been professing believers are getting swept up in the cultural movement because now, let me tell you, there's a pressure that's being exerted upon us culturally to conform to the ideas of the world and the value systems of the world. And so believers in our generation are being put in a corner of sorts. Are you going to go along with the world in terms of ethics regarding sexuality and marriage and the family and human life and all? Are you going to get, get swept up by the culture and go along with the culture so that you can fit in with the culture? Or are you going to sort of say like Joshua, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You choose this day whom you're going to serve, but we're going to serve the Lord. So the dividing lines were being drawn in Jerusalem. You had some who were defecting from the faith so that they could gain political points with Antiochus, and yet you had some others who refused to get swept up by it all. Now, the zenith and the apex of Antiochus, his persecution of the Jews, it comes really the desecration that he commits against the temple. He had been away campaigning down in Egypt and he suffered a humiliating setback. The Roman fleet had been anchored just off the coast of Cyprus. The Roman Senate sent a delegation to Alexandria, Egypt, I believe it was, where, where Antiochus and his armies were. And uh, that Roman delegation basically said, look, you need to get back where you came from. We know you've been successful here in the south in the past, but no more. Leave Egypt alone. Get back to Syria. And so history says Antiochus responded by saying, well, I'll think about it. Well, the Roman general uh, that confronted him was a guy by the name of Pompilius. He took out his sword and he drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and said, think all you want to, but by the time you step out of this circle, your mind better be made up that you're headed back to Syria where you came from. So he says, okay, and uh, he heads back north, but he doesn't get all the way back to Antioch. You know where he stops? He stops halfway in Jerusalem, and he vents his frustration on the Jews. 
But he waits to do it on the Sabbath. Uh, His army of 25,000 camp around the city. They wait until the Sabbath day where he gives orders to his army to waltz into the city and put to death those who were Orthodox Jews in their faith. He knew they wouldn't fight back because it was on the Sabbath. First and second Maccabees basically tells us that he slaughtered somewhere around 80,000 Jews. Went into the temple and he erected a statue to the Greek god Zeus in the Holy of Holies, sacrificed a sow, spattered the blood of that sow throughout the temple complex, and he force-fed the pork to the priests. That was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Jesus says something in Matthew chapter 24. He quotes from Daniel eleven thirty-one, Daniel 9, 27, and says that there's a coming future man of sin, an abomination of desolation, that in many ways it's going to parallel the tyranny of Antiochus. And it's going to give rise to a time of tribulation the likes of which the world has never seen. Now now here's some, let me just kind of make some application here for just a second. Daniel's been told that this ruler is going to emerge from what remains of the Greek empire. That ruler is going to present a great crisis for God's people. The crisis involves pressure through political, cultural, and religious means. So it would be a convergence, a perfect storm of pressure, if you will, for the people of God. This guy's going to act deceitfully. He's going to work his will. He's going to take action against the Holy Covenant. He'll pay attention or regard those who forsake the covenant. He'll desecrate the sanctuary by setting up the abomination of desolation. Verse 32 says that he will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. In other words, those who are loosely affiliated with the faith will get swept up by his deception. I like how the New American Standard translates verse 32. It says, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. And some will abandon their faith because the pressure will be too intense. Which, by the way, as bad as that may sound, do you know that God always uses crisis for his own purposes in our lives as his people? Crisis has a way of revealing the contents of your character unlike anything else. Pressure reveals contents. And so when pain and misfortune and even crisis comes into our lives as believers, it has this sifting, winnowing effect in my life. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, crisis is the means by which genuine faith is tested and proven to be legitimate. Peter says this, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. That the tested genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've heard it said that a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. 
So perhaps in our life, the greatest thing that could happen would be for some crisis to come our way that God uses to sort of put a mirror up before us where we're able to see the genuine contents of our faith, whether it's legitimate or whether it's not. So that's the crisis that would be faced by God's people. Now, quickly, let me just leave you with a second thing. The courage that would be shown. A crisis was coming, and yet that crisis would provide an opportunity for courage to be shown. Antiochus will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but listen to this, here's the courage. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So God doesn't always spare his people from crisis, but he is faithful to prepare his people for crisis and sustain his people through the crisis. Many of you can testify to that in your own life. God's faithful to give us an advance warning that we ought to be on the lookout for. And so Israel would face this test under the pressure that comes from a man of sin like Antiochus. Many would forsake the covenant. They'll fall in line with his agenda. But Daniel is told that those who truly know their God, they're going to stand firm and they're going to take action. Other translations say it this way. The people who know their God will display strength and do great exploits. In other words, they're not going to be swept up by the cultural and political pressure to compromise as far as their faith is concerned. Obedience to God will be more important to them than caving in for the sake of convenience. That's one of the most important lessons that we can learn from the book of Daniel. So how is this courage shown in the midst of great crisis? Listen, it's shown in a number of ways, not the least of which is knowing God. The people who know their God will stand firm and take action. The Hebrew word translated for know there, it's a word that means intimate experiential knowledge. It's not just knowledge of facts, although that's certainly included. Uh, the word is related to the knowledge that a husband has of his wife. It's the same word used in Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife. Speaks of an intimate, deeply personal knowledge. You know, you consider the couple that's been married for several decades. Obviously, they have informational knowledge about each other. They have uh, emotional knowledge of each other. They have volitional knowledge of each other. They know what makes one another tick. But beyond that, there ought to be this deep intimacy that they have with each other. Isn't it amazing that couples that have been married a long time and you just look at them and they, they even sort of look like each other? You can't imagine one without the other. The idea is, I love this, Tony Evans says it's a relationship so authentic that it results in a synchronized way of living, a cadence that's been established as a natural outgrowth of the relationship itself. Because they have intimate knowledge of each other, they're walking at the same pace. There's a cadence that distinguishes their life and their relationship. Listen, it's an unfortunate thing when two people share the same house and sleep in the same bed, but they don't share the same cadence of life. 
to break down an intimacy somewhere along the way. Now, if that's true of the marriage relationship, how much more should it be true of a person's relationship with God? I mean, do you possess such an intimate knowledge of God that it brings cadence to your life? I love how those early chapters in Genesis describe the servants of God like Enoch as someone who walked with God. It wasn't just religion that they had, but it was a cadence of life. Intimacy with God led to walking with God. Are you walking with God day by day? Knowledge of God is the most important pursuit in life. And I'm not just talking about knowledge about God. Now, obviously, if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, you need to grow in your knowledge about God, which is why time in the Word is so very important. It's why involvement in a local fellowship of believers is so very important. It's why regular involvement, sitting under the systematic, verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word is important. But these are merely means to an end. You know what we do in the church? We make the means to an end, the end itself. What is the end? The end is intimate knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Walking with God, knowing God, worshiping God. And such fear of God, according to the Bible, is the beginning of all wisdom. I mean, you're not even able to process your life and the happenings of your life unless you possess this fear of God and this intimate knowledge of God. Because when you know God, it puts everything else in perspective, doesn't it? So knowing God, notice how Daniel is told there in verse 32, that leads to standing firm. What's the result of knowing God? Verse 32 says those who know their God in this intimate, personal, experiential knowledge, they're going to stand firm when the prevailing winds of culture blow against them and against their faith. Instead of coming to pieces, they're held together in the midst of the storm. They're able to survive and remain calm even in the toughest of circumstances. You go through the pages of Scripture and you see how this is true of the men and women of the Bible who walked with God. Hebrews 11 in that hall of faith chapter. You think about all that the patriarchs encountered in terms of their difficulty, in terms of crisis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Think about Joseph, how Joseph was betrayed by those that should have been the closest to him. How he was sold into slavery. How things went from bad to worse. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison. He didn't understand how it was all working together. But Toward the end of his life, he's able to look back and see how the hand of God was with him every step of the way. And what was it that sustained him in those good times and sustained him in those bad times? It was his knowledge of God in his grace, in his mercy, in his providential wisdom. Same thing's true of Job and Job's life. Same thing's true of David and his life and his setbacks and even his own failures. The same thing's true in Peter's life and John's life and the same thing ought to be true in my life and your life as those who know Jesus. Knowledge of God, knowing God leads to standing firm and it doesn't just stop there. It leads to taking action. The crisis that Antiochus would 
provoked would lead many to fall away. But those who truly know their God will stand firm and they're going to take action. They're not going to be passive. Now this is probably a reference to the Maccabees. There was an old priest by the name of Mattathias in the days of Antiochus. He was priest in a little town called Modin, which was 20 miles to the north and west of Jerusalem. There was an envoy from Antiochus one day that came along and said, hey, uh, you need to sacrifice a pig. You need to worship the Greek gods because that's the order of Antiochus. And old Mattathias said, not going to do it. Not going to do it. There was another leader in the village who stepped up and said, I'll do it. Just for the sake of the P, I'll do it. You know what Mattathias did? Now, I don't advocate this. I don't say this is what we ought to. He rose up and killed the apostate, <laughs> killed the envoy from Antiochus. Then he and his sons headed for the hills. <laughs> they hid out in the hills. Uh, one of his sons was named Judas Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer. And it was the Maccabean revolt that led to the recapturing of the temple in Jerusalem and the feast of dedication known as Hanukkah. But folks, here's, here's the application today for us. Regardless of the storm that's engulfing our country and engulfing the world, are you ready for the days ahead? Be they good, be they evil. God's people need to be ready. But the people who know their God through faith in Jesus Christ it's deep, it's personal, it's abiding, it's intimate. They're going to stand firm and they're going to take action. Stand with me as we pray this morning. What action is it that maybe God's calling you to as a believer today? You know, I never cease to be absolutely amazed at the ways in which so many in our church family are serving God faithfully behind the scenes. I had a couple come up to me out of our church family just this last week and talked about how foster care and adoption was something that's become so important to them. They've been burdened by the culture of death that Western culture has become. And to be truly proactive in terms of being pro-life they're championing, championing the cause of being foster care parents and adoption and have opened up their home. I think that's tremendous. Amen. Or the ways, the countless ways that so many of you are serving God faithfully behind the scenes where you work, where you go to school. The people who know their God, who have a deep personal abiding in, those, listen, the apostle Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. One thing that Paul wanted beyond anything else was to know Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know God this morning? If not, then I urge you, while you have time and opportunity, turn from your sin. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And His Spirit will come to take up residence in you, and you'll be in possession of that life, intimate knowledge of God. 
And the longer I live and the longer God keeps me here, the more I want to grow in that knowledge of him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to sing here in just a few moments. This altar is open. You need to come. You need to pray. For whatever reason, I want to encourage you to come even right now. If you need to come talk to someone about salvation and baptism, I'll be here. We've got some other pastors here available. We'll even be here after the service. I encourage you to come. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you. Lord, for the hope that we find in your word. That even though crisis has its way of coming, you're faithful to warn us of what's up ahead so that we can be prepared. We don't want just empty religion, Lord. We don't want to just simply be affiliated with the church. Lord, we want to be in possession of a deep and abiding personal knowledge of God through relationship with Jesus Christ so that we can stand firm in times like these and so that we can take action and be obedient to what it is you call us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.